Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. It is actually one of our fellows at Shock Trauma. It's, it's a little, doesn't quite do his background justice to call him just a simple fellow here, but Howard Pryor, former military, former pediatric surgeon, former chief of pediatrics down the road at Bethesda Naval Medical Center, and decided for whatever reason that we will let him explain at the end, he decided to come back and do a trauma and critical care or surgery critical care fellowship thanks for joining us Howard. sure it's my pleasure thanks for uh, asking me to help out with this interesting project you've started up here i like it yeah and what we're going to leverage today is your pediatric background so uh, you know pediatric trauma is it's one of those populations that you hear people use the things that well they're just little adults or they're not just little adults <laughs> i'd like to get at the kind of the, the fact versus fiction for some of that and some of the history and some of the common things that really people need to know about pediatric trauma so let's start with, in general, the one thing, the element, the tool that has fascinated me the most about pediatric surgery, you see nowhere else, except perhaps veterinary medicine, is, and then maybe there's some correlates there, right? <laughs> but uh, at least from patients who can't give you reliable information all the time. Definitely. <laughs> uh, is the Braslow tape. Yeah. Where did this thing come from? And tell us how is it, is it what's the clinical utility? I would say um, this is one of the most combination intelligent and useful clinical developments for the care of children that's ever been developed. Um, the Breslau tape and the subsequent resuscitation system is a um, is a thing that was developed by a guy named James Breslau with another guy who gets very little press named Robert Luton. They are um, they were at University of Florida together in their early 80s, and I had identified that they kept having difficulties running codes on kids in the trauma bay or the resuscitation bay. Uh, because there was a lot of time being spent trying to calculate doses for emergency medications, finding the right devices for the kids, and so on and so forth. So they invented this thing called the Breslau tape, where you lie a child supine, and you put the tape next to them with the top end of it at their head, and then wherever their feet lie on the tape, it demarcates a segment of the tape, and all of the calculations for the medication doses and the equipment that you're supposed to use for a child of that size and ideal weight are located on the chart and then you just flip it over and it tells you what devices to use, chest tubes, suction, the whole thing. Um, they've expanded that further to include the resuscitation system where they actually have the unit doses color-coded by color-coded segments on the Breslau tape so that you can very rapidly identify a child's ideal weight and wall the equipment that you need to take care of them, open up that one color-coded section, and if you need up an effort, a unit dose is right there for you without measuring or calculating anything. That's yeah, pretty brilliant. We don't have nothing like it for adults, right? There's no tooth to tattoo ratio, for example, that, <laughs> yeah, right. that would help us with most of my trauma patients. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think, and I've used it in, Af you've used it too in deployed settings. It works for kids in Afghanistan, Americans. There's some controversy I know about body habitus in the American kid, but as a general rule, man, it's just such a brilliant tool. Yeah. Um, so it's a great tool to guide us through the primary assessments, uh, resuscitation after trauma. But what other tips? What, do we just straight follow the ABCDE? What are the what's different with pediatrics that, that you would want to convey to people who don't see peds a lot? Well, I think um, in the primary in the primary assessment for trauma, the, there are some basics. We do still follow the A B C D E F and G guidelines that we talk about um, for all ATLS trauma responses, but there are some special population issues for children that you have to pay attention to. Uh, one thing is the pediatric limits for vital signs. A respiratory rate has to be less than 60 or there's something seriously wrong. You have a tension pneumothorax 
and developing or other impending respiratory failure. 60 is a very hard limit. Yeah, I find it hard because kids they have faster heartbeats, they breathe faster by nature, but 60 seems for respiratory to be kind of your upper hard limit for respiratory. Yeah, stuff. okay. You got to do something about that. And you really need to start looking at a, a, a fundamental underlying cause for that that you need to, need to intervene on. Uh, heart rate is normally two to three times their, their respiratory rate. If the respiratory rate is normal, obviously, if you're in the 60s, then your heart rate is going to be very un, uh, questionable. Um, systolic blood pressure has ranges. For neonates, uh, anything greater than 60 is, is adequate. For a one-month-old to a one-year-old, and that's greater than 70, calculations start at one-year-old, one to 10 years old. Um, it should be uh, 70 plus two times their age in millimeters of mercury for a systolic blood pressure. And greater than 10, it should be greater than 90, pretty much. And then that goes on into adulthood. Then it's typically kind of we shoot for greater than 90 loosely in adults for trauma. Okay. That's a guideline. That is an eyeball at the bed, end of the bed, look-see kind of general assessment trick. Okay, so there, some people may be listening to this driving stuff and not taking notes. I'm going to repeat this back to you, make sure I got it. Sure. And because I think these are gold numbers. So respiratory rate should always be less than 60, yep. number one. Number two, normal heart rate is two to three times the respiratory rate. Correct. And then the last one you said with the stock blood pressure ranges, neonate should always be above 60. Mm-hmm. A month to a year greater than 70. One to 10 years old is greater than 70 plus two times their age. And then greater than 10 years is like typical adults greater than 90. So when they get to 10, it's just stop hemodynamically. Systolic blood pressure, right. Okay, gotcha. And when you do the math, obviously, at a, for a 10-year-old, 70 plus two times their age will get you to 90 anyway. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, well, that's kind of vital signs and stuff. What about airway? I think one more thing I would say about vital signs just... To reemphasize this, I know that most people that cover trauma are naturally fearful of this anyway, but it warrants a reiteration that kids will have their vital signs look normal until they go all haywire. They don't slowly decline. So if you see a kid starting to look even a little bit on the precipice of instability, that's a time to beginning to begin acting and intervening and being prepared for the next move because kids decompensate much more rapidly than adults. Usually adults will drift and the kids will go good to bad. They stay on that plateau and compensate, compensate, and then fall off and you know, get tachycardic, bradycardic die in very quick episodes. Yeah? Yes. Okay. And most cardiac arrest in kids are hypoxic in nature. So if the sats are dropping and then the heart rate starts dropping, your first inotrope is oxygen. Ah, okay, good. Nice pearl. I like it. What about airway? What's different with the with the pediatric airway? So there's there are uh, some anatomic differences in pediatric airways. The younger a child is, the more these are applicable, and it kind of tapers off around 12 to 14 years old. Um, but in small, and definitely in the smaller kids under six years old, the occiput is much larger in children, uh, and that will result in forced neck flexion if they're laid on a completely flat surface. So there's usually, even with a seized collar in place, a small uh, pad that's placed under children that does not go underneath their occiput but goes underneath their C-collar and their back to keep them elevated a little bit to account for that difference. To let their head dangle back a bit. Just a touch. In my redneck vernacular. Let the head dangle. Got it. Okay. Uh, The larynx is more anterior, so when you're actually going to intubate a child, uh, there's more upward angulation of the laryngoscope. And associated with that, um, you can achieve a great deal of benefit from a little bit of cricothyroid pressure uh, by an additional person helping you out with that. Oftentimes, the anterior portion of the C-collar has to be actually removed in a pediatric uh, intubation in order to accomplish this task. Okay. 
Related to that, children's epiglottises, epiglottis, are um, shorter and uh, and are stiffer. So Mac blades are generally a little less effective at controlling the, uh, the intubation. You usually have to put a Miller blade in there and lift the epiglottis up directly out of the way, as opposed to using the Mac where you kind of push its base out of the way and it follows you. Okay. Um, the nearest point in a trachea is subglottic, which is why in the very young kids on the Breslau resuscitation system, you'll find that there are cuffless tubes for the smaller babies because you kind of wedge the tube in there and there's not that much room to inflate anyway. Um, so it's, and that's usually why cuffless tubes are used under eight years old. That has changed a little bit. And if you have an anesthesiologist intubating who's really comfortable with what they're doing, it's a different matter. But if it's a emergency intubation, a cuffless tube, cuffless tube under eight is still pretty typical. Okay. And finally, if you're standing at the bedside trying to figure out what kind of tube to use and you don't have a Breslau uh, resuscitation system available for your use, as a general guide, you can use the uh, diameter of the fifth digit as an estimate for the ET tube diameter for intubation. And that's the patient's fifth digit. That's correct. not my fifth yeah, digit. Yeah, correct. That is okay. not your fifth digit. That's <laughs> Fair <right>. enough. <laughs> that'd be a big mistake if I tried to put my fifth digit in a little, uh, you know, you know three yeah, 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 that'd be trouble. Um, what about airway control? So that's kind of the considerations. Nasopharyngeal intubation. Can we do that in kids? Generally not. It's generally uh, difficult to make that turn and then get anterior angulation. It's more common, unless there are some anatomic reasons that you're facing in a trauma bay, it's more common to go directly to a surgical airway in a, in a smaller child. What's our go-to surgical airway then? Crike? Crike well, right? actually, that's an interesting point that you bring up. Uh, really, at under 10, because the crike, the cricoid cartilage is so um, uh, tenuous, you really want to do needle crike jet insufflation until you can do, until you can formalize that either to a proper intubation or a trach. Uh, you'd Cricothyroidotomies are avoided in kids under 10 unless it is absolutely the last ditch effort to save a life. But the, if you injure that, cric, that cricoid cartilage, they can have airway problems literally for the rest of their life. And you talked a lot about that kind of the hypoxia and airway codes being a predominant problem in the kids. Um, they get bradycardic quick and all that stuff. Do you do you add uh, what medications you use to combat that? So uh, atropine is used as an adjunct in uh, rapid sequence induction in the trauma bay very frequently to keep their heart rate up uh, during that period of time so that they aren't as prone to bradycardic response to hypoxia. Specific dosing. I guess you look on the Breslow tape. Just exactly. Yep, okay. The Breslow tape will have a unit dose for you. All right. Let's talk about. Let's move kind of through the rest of the uh, exam here. What about breathing? What's how do we how do you assess that in different kids? Well, I mean, the very first thing you want to do is just get a, a pulse ox on the kid. And right off the bat, as kids roll into the trauma bay, just applying uh, supplemental oxygen to them is a totally appropriate thing to do. That will prevent you from uh, inadvertently finding their hypoxic limit and getting a cardiac arrest. So that's one of the first things that we do. Are there differences in the kids' kind of chests and mediastinums that influence care? Yes. Actually, one of the big things to really appreciate about the younger kids is that their ribs are pliant. So if they absorb an enormous amount of force, they still may not crack a rib, but it can seriously contuse the lungs. It can also spawn a hemothorax or pneumothorax without a fracture or even a green stick fracture on the inside of the chest that doesn't show as a break on the x-ray but rips the lung. Uh, so fl they're flexible. They're, when you say pliant, that's not a cousin to a fire ant. That's a, oh, yeah, that's, that's correct. That's, that's they're flexible. flexible. Yeah, they will bend without breaking. There you go. Okay, yeah. good. And then the mediastinum itself is very, is very um, mobile. So 
comparatively speaking, the membranes that hold the mediastinum in place in an adult are far less rigid in a child, and a smaller amount of accumulated pressure in the chest can result in tension physiology in a, in a child. Everything's smaller. What about chest tubes? Everything is smaller, including chest tubes, in as much as you have to actually gauge the... If you have a hemopneumothorax that you're trying to drain in a child, you're going to be limited by getting... the. You want to get a pretty decent-sized tube in there. It'll be limited by your intercostal space. 18 French is a whopping tube in a small kid, uh, whereas I know in a you know an 18 French chest tube in an adult, people would laugh at you for such a uh, minimal device. So in this case, that's actually a very whopping... And I forget, actually. Is that on the Breslov tape, too? The chest it is. Tubes? Yeah, oh, chest beautiful. tube size Man, is recommended. Thank it's you. A, gives you a range. Breslov. Thank you, James Breslov, for helping me. I <laughs> love it. Um, so what about drainage? So, you know, an adult, you put a chest tube in, 1,500 cc's means go to the operating room, or ATLS tells us greater than 200 over the next two hours. That's the concerning. How do we tailor that to a pediatric patient? Because if they put out 1,500 out their chest tube... They might uh, not have 1,500 to put out uh, Yeah, exactly. So yeah. What's, what's our, what are our barometers for, for that? Well, drainage of one to two cc's per kilo per hour is your go-to guideline. If you have, if you're seeing between one and two cc's of blood in a chest tube every in a chest tube drainage kit every hour, you probably have surgically unaddressed hemorrhage in the chest that needs to be looked at. And when you talk about uh, running a chest tube on a kid, uh, it's important to understand that the suction is not um, universally at 20 for every child either. That actually has to be scaled up based on size. General guidelines are zero to five years old, should be five uh, centimeters of water. Five to 10 years old would be 10 centimeters of water. 10 to 15 years old would be 15 centimeters of water. And then over 15 year adult uh, suction. If you have a chest tube in place and it's not fully relieved a pneumothorax, but it's in communication with it, you can increase the suction to try to get the lung re-expanded, but eventually you want to try to drop back down to a lower level of suction for kids. Okay. What now? So we've got them intubated. The breast sounds are okay. They didn't, fortunately, need a chest tube. What are vent settings for kids and goals? What, yep. what are our goals here? So starting, uh, I kind of generalized starting... Um, vent setting for a kid is actually very similar to what you would just think about for like an ARDSnet initiation of into, of, um, of ventilation, and that would be an FiO2 of 100%. You're shooting for a tidal volume, irrespective of whether you're doing pressure or volume control, depending on what your institution is used to using. You're looking for a tidal volume between six and eight cc's per kilo. Uh, you want a respiratory rate, depending again in part on age and weight you, and the Breslau tape will give you some suggestions on this as well. You're shooting for a respiratory rate between 15 and 20 um, per minute and then you got a, a peep to start out with at 5. Are SATs and PAO2 goals if you're getting a, uh, arterial gas is the same as, as targets for adults? They, they are similar. A PAO2 of 88 uh, is con- or greater is considered adequate. Okay. Um, and then if you don't have a suspected head injury, you're shooting for a PCO2 around 30 from 32 down to 28, something like that. Uh, excuse me, PCO2 of... Um, of 32 to 28, something like that. If there's a suspected head injury, increasing those limits to 35 uh, millimeters of mercury and 30 is also kind of considered generally appropriate. Okay, that's good stuff. What, let's move to circulation now. We kind of we, we, by 
by design or not, we started working through the ABCs. So let's get to uh, let's get to C. We kind of covered A and B. Sure. Um, for C, uh, you talked a little bit about how the vital signs fall off the cliff, and that these compensation can be rapid. Um, how do we? What's the best access choice in kind of that C category? What fluid should we give, and when should we switch to blood, and when should we start doing? What 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 are markers for CPR utilization? Sure, those are all those are all essential kind of things to have in the back of your mind as you're starting off one of these uh, with the arrival of a seriously injured child. The ideal, you know, as with any trauma, the ideal scenario is to have two large bore peripheral IVs, and a large bore in a child might be 20 or even a 22 gauge, depending on the size of the child, and a, a trauma technician uh, that is capable of obtaining um, peripheral access in a child in these circumstances is a clutch component of a level one trauma center for children. When they are not able to get that, progressing immediately to IO access is very commonly done. Central access in children can be very difficult, very challenging for a host of reasons, not the least of which is children are smaller and there's so many people crowded around a kid trying to give a place a central venous access while other people are trying to appropriately assess airway, breathing, and do all of their work makes it very challenging. Going for a tibial IO is considered totally appropriate as your very next step. You can come back and get central access later. Get to an IO, get the child resuscitated, and then go backwards to uh, more durable central access. As kids are a little bit bigger, there are other um, vascular access um, maneuvers that are indicated sometimes cut downs on um, uh, ankle vein is indicated for kids in the 8 to 12 range but generally speaking your go-to method is peripheral IO central venous catheter after things have toned down a little bit okay mm -hmm. what fluids do we get well, you can start out with a little bit of, you know, this is, again, there's a little bit of controversy here. In the adult world, we go to blood very quickly now. In kids, that is also becoming the standard of care is that we go to a massive transfusion protocol. Uh, there are still places that are giving some crystalloid to start out with uh, just to get cardiac output maintained. Um, in those cases, uh, using some crystalloid at, in increments of 20 cc or 20 milliliters per kilogram, that is considered a hefty uh, initial dose. That is the equivalent of one liter. So if you've given 40 per kilo of crystalloid, you have exceeded your, you've met your two liter investigatory um, response to volume um, type criteria. Okay. By that time, you should have already been thinking about a massive transfusion protocol. These are still done in a one to one to one ratio with packed red cells, um, FFP and platelets, but in increments of 20 or 40 cc's per kilo. Uh, in each one of those, that represents a child unit, if you will. Okay. So you just have the ratios are the same, just the volumes at 20 is the magic number. Correct. Um, what about CPR? So if I, irrespective of um, all other things, if a child's heart rate drops below 60 beats per minute, uh, it, and we're talking, these are kids generally that are eight years or younger. If it drops below 60 beats per minute, particularly if it's associated with hypoxia, you should begin chest compressions until you get their heart rate back up. And this is one of those reflexes that is very stressful to observe because you hear the pulse oximeter beeps get less and less pronounced and less high in tone 
and then you just can watch the heart rate go from 120 to 90 to 70 to 50 to 20 and it doesn't take but a second for any of that stuff to happen yeah. so when you hit 60 you should start chest compressions all right so i think we did you gave us the tips pretty well for success for abcs let's keep going down the algorithm we, we went down this path let's keep treading down it uh disability uh, so GCS exam does that work? I, kids are perplexed me in terms of the neuro exam because my brain is hardwired for adult GCS. Sure. So there, there, there is a, a pediatric GCS scale that does exist. Uh, that is, and you know, obviously in kids that are old enough to talk to you in full sentences and react a little bit more normally, like a ten, many ten-year-olds, if they have broken their arm after being in a car accident, but are otherwise fine, can look at you in the eyes and be a GCS of 15, but very uncomfortable, and it's like a GCS 15 adult in that way. Um, for the younger kids, uh, there's some judgment involved, and you can also use what's called the AVPU scale, which is whether they are alert, responsive to verbal commands like calling their name and having them track to you and look at you, um, responsive to painful stimuli, or unresponsive. Those are, those are quick guidelines that we use in kids that don't actually directly correlate with GCS, but if you are at the responsive to painful stimuli or unresponsive mode, you're definitely thinking about the concerns of intubation, defending the airway, and so forth. Yeah. All right, what about, let's see what else, uh, exposure. If we're going to go the full way down the road, exposure, what kind of, if you're going to expose a kid, any special considerations there? Well, I think there's two considerations. The first one is that, generally speaking, pediatric vital signs are very sensitive to hypothermia. So if a child gets cold, you can you can reasonably expect some vital sign changes to start occurring. That is to be avoided. Their um, triangle of death still exists in kids as well, and you want to keep them warm, but they don't have as much um, insulating fat layer typically. And so having the room warm, keeping them warm, getting warm blankets, even cycling warm blankets onto them, warming the fluids that you're giving them, all of those things are even more paramount. Uh, most level one trauma centers are very good and attentive about that, but it, you can't lose sight of it in the winter time when they might have been transported out of a car that was cold for a period of time as they were getting extracted and stuff like that. Yeah. The I think the other thing is um, when it comes to exposure, kids can become very traumatized by observing, for instance, a compound fracture of their own. Uh, and so providing some form of um, pain relief before you try to expose a known obvious deformity and also maybe providing some form of conscious sedation is a reasonable thing to do because uh, unwrapping a fracture on a six-year-old where there's bones sticking out can be very very traumatic okay so for those of us who don't deal with kids a lot what are your go-to pain control and sedation and what what doses just come to mind for you well, right, again, and I know the Breslow tape will help with this. Yeah, yeah, actually. So I would just say that the drugs are pretty much the straightforward stuff. We don't routinely use succinylcholine on children as often because they can have, um, there can be significant reactions to that. So we use rocuronium for paralytics. For pain medication, uh, morphine is still a totally adequate medication. It's got uh, relatively limited side effects. Um, we do also use fentanyl in the trauma bay for pain. And then when it comes to sedation, there are variations on the theme. You can apply an opioid with the benzodiazepine, short-acting benzo-like uh, benzo Ativan. The other alternative is to just administer ketamine in low doses. To, um, and, and oftentimes, if 
in a pediatric trauma setting where you're taking care of like a six or seven year old, it would be appropriate to ask for some conscious sedation assistance from either your emergency medicine partners or your anesthesia folks if you need to unwrap a, a very bad mangled extremity or some other thing like that where it's going to be terrifying for the child. So let's talk about now. This is a tough question and always a judgment call in each instance, but the challenge, the the imaging that we utilize, right? Mm-hmm. So ultrasound, great, no radiation risk, technology is perfect. Even a chest X-ray, you can help some of these kids. You can fit all in one film. It's a chest, abdomen, pelvis, and knees all in one film. But radiation from a CT. So are your indications, for example, head CT and imaging specifically different for especially age-related? So there are there are a couple of different strategies that are um, that are employed to kind of limit the unnecessary or maybe what well, I guess I shouldn't say unnecessary but maybe non-revealing um, radiation to the head for children specifically the criteria that um, I use most commonly is the PCARN criteria which um, have been adopted as kind of a, a reasonable standard of care what's PCARN? oh uh, um Gosh, you know, I've used I it so often I forgot. It's one of those now, terms you use all it the time. Is, um, it's, a, it's an organization, though, right? It There's is resources. an organization, yeah. yeah. It's oh, PCARN. It stands for something network. Oh, that's killing me. Uh, um, pediatric critical. Oh, you know what? I'm going to Google it while we're talking. Keep right. going. That sounds good. Um, pediatric head injury trauma algorithm by PCARN. There you go. Yeah, so let's see. It doesn't tell me what PCARN stands for anymore. I feel terrible because I'm. it is something I probably should know. Fair enough. We'll keep pressing. What, what so, does yeah. it say, actually? Uh, their criteria is uh, is very helpful because for kids under two years old, you pretty much get a CT scan if they have altered mental status uh, or a palpable skull fracture. Now, you might ask, how do we determine altered mental status? In kids, uh, if they're unresponsive to stimuli, that is surely altered mental status under two years old. Um, there are, if you cannot really interact with them, if they're not following, if their eyes are looking to one side only, uh, some other indications like that um, would be in that category. You, a CT versus direct observation is is considered for a severe mechanism, loss of consciousness that's greater than four seconds, a non-frontal scalp hematoma, and abnormal behavior based on the parents. So it turns out PCARN stands for, uh, what did I find here? The Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. Yes, that's right. So I, I'm going to win that one at the bar quiz. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, now, if a kid's over the two over two years old yep. and before 18 years of age, mental status, again, would get you a head CT and signs of a basilar skull fracture, so raccoon eyes primarily or, you know, mastoid hematomas, things of that nature, would get you a head CT reflexively. Uh, anything where you're kind of applying clinical judgment is if there's a severe mechanism. If the a kid over two years of age has had any loss of consciousness, um, there's vomiting or there's a severe headache. I think the key, one of the key things to to note about loss of consciousness consciousness greater than five seconds. In an under two-year-old, it's not that uncommon if they get into an accident or even sustain a small head bonk and get so freaked out that they kind of fire all of their catecholamines at once and then have a brief period of time where they're just like wiped out for a few seconds. I think that's why they kind of point out the five-second loss of consciousness because to a casual observer, when they hit that wall and they're just like wiped, it can look like loss of consciousness when really they're just like kind of resting and rebuilding their catecholamines for the next burst of you know, yeah. un- unhappiness. So the 
Cliff's notes that I can remember, because I don't have much of a memory, would be if they have altered mental status or either a palpable skull fracture, evidence of basilar skull, that's a trigger go. Just go, yeah. All the rest of them, think about it, but there's some tip-offs there that you mentioned, the mechanism, the loss of consciousness, the hematoma, parents saying kids acting funny. Yeah. Those things are important. What about... Let's go down C-spine, and then uh, you, is plain film still the way to go for C-spine, or do you use CT in that instance? So we we like to limit CT scan. Uh, however, generally speaking, it's very difficult to clinically clear a C-spine on a kid without associated radiologic imaging, just because it's oftentimes very hard to get those kids to engage in a proper clinical uh, evaluation in the setting of the trauma bay. The other scenario is always, it's always fine, all, even if the kids hate it, to leave a C-spine or a C-collar on and leave them in immobilization until the dust settles and come back and do an evaluation at a later time. But I use an AP and lateral view. The odontoid's almost in, impossible to get on kids anyway, and it doesn't really, it's usually, in, it's usually not of any additional value. What you're looking for is um, prevertebral uh, expansion uh, or any misalignment of their bones because with kids, in addition to all other things, you can also have sclera, which is that um, spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. Good, we knew that. That was good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, and uh, and if you sometimes you can see soft tissue swelling on your uh, imaging that will help yeah. key you in that that may be the case, then you can approach examining that kid a little bit differently. If they are, have any tenderness at all, you can pause that and go to MRI and. And yeah. redirect. It's interesting. It seems like in adults, like the plain film's becoming a lost art because uh, everybody gets shan- pan scanned, right? So it's still pretty much a, a staple of pediatric surgery practice, though, correct? Just because you're trying to adhere to those, another eponym, right? Alara, Alara right? Yeah. As low as reasonably allowable radiation principles. Yes. Yeah. What about, uh, let's go to chest, abdomen, and pelvis. So a lot of gray area here. I mean, a lot. Now, you can go six ways a Sunday on these things, but what? give me one either left or right lane to say I absolutely don't need it or I absolutely do need it. Well, I would say I kind of think about it with these criteria being negative. I defer a CT of the abdomen and pelvis. Any one of these becoming positive, then we're getting, a, we're getting a CT. So if their GCS is less than 14, we're getting a CT. If they have had vomiting, we're going to get a CT. Uh, if they've had evidence of thoracic wall trauma, they're, we're going to get an abdominal and pelvic CT, and most likely we're going to we're going to consider a chest CT. I'm going to look at a chest X-ray first and see if I really feel like it's of value. They have decreased breath sounds. They have evidence of abdominal wall trauma, like a seatbelt sign. Uh, they have abdominal pain or they have abdominal tenderness. If they're all negative for all of those things, and I'll say them one more time. If their GCS is greater than 14, they have not vomited, they don't have any evidence of thoracic wall trauma, they have normal breath sounds, they have no evidence of abdominal wall trauma, no abdominal pain and no abdominal tenderness, I will observe them. Uh, and the, the period of time for observation depends on how otherwise well they are and how much more, how physiologically normal they appear. They're generally, and we're in a car accident and they have a bruise on their arm, they were appropriately restrained and they are negative on all of those respects. I would admit them for maybe six hours of observation if they have a reliable parent to go home with. And then we would uh, follow them up with a phone call in the morning and make sure everything's going okay. That's perfect. That was exactly seven pillars of things that you can use. So seven pillars of wisdom yeah oh, right. okay, for, for radiographic wave off right, we went through a lot 
uh, and uh, there's certainly a lot more finite details, particularly as it comes to post-operative management. I think maybe we can do another podcast sure. on that for pediatric uh, trauma at some point. I sure. think it'd be interesting to kind of do this some of that. But at this point, I think we have to jump into our random questions. Now, you, uh, we've talked to our fellows about this thing. You've heard some of our podcasts. Um, you're one of the six people who've downloaded this thing uh, at this point. I'm sure it'll go worldwide. We're going to get viral at some point. But uh, this is the time when we ask a random question. So are you sure. ready for your random questions? I am ready for my random questions. All right. Dr. Well, so do you deal with pediatric patients all the time? You live in the world of fantasy. You have to have a running vernacular and a, a familiar knowledge with every Disney movie. And every, this is how you converse with your patients, like we do with sports or politics. Oh, yes. you got to know which one's Elsa and which one's Anna, which yeah. I still can't keep straight. White hair, baby. It's all, all right. Well, hair. so one of them has... <laughs> Ice that comes out their hand, and the other, and they both sing well. I don't know which one's which, but uh, if I'm going to ask you, dinosaurs or dragons, which way are you going? That's you know, with the How to Train Your Dragon series, that's a tough one, and actually, even Avatar brought dragons into the modern era. But I still have to go with dinosaurs because, based on my you know personal interest in science, those things are cool. And yeah, but a lot of it, there's a lot of real stuff to talk about and teach kids about with dinosaurs. So I'm going to go with dinosaurs. Okay. So I, one of the things I it was very interesting. I kind of just I didn't do a lot of prep for this because I got an expert, and all you have to do is throw softballs to you, and you hit them out of the park as you've done. But I kind of looked over Dr. Breslow's Wikipedia page, and it was interesting to me. They have like a listing of all his patents and his inventions, his inventions in entrepreneurial week. Uh, entrepreneurial work and uh, all of them are medical based except for one that's a plate holder with a beverage container and I don't know if he was just kicking around on a Saturday and said I'm going to develop a plate with a get a patent with a plate with a cup on the bottom of it but there's a lot of inventions that that clearly hasn't made it to mass consumption Um, it's not something I have in my cabinet maybe other people do but what one invention would you uninvent that you think is just did not need to be invented in the first place the all caps key on the computer 100%. Oh, 100%. Or on the I, cell phone. I uh, hate that you people click on there and then they're yelling at me on the phone. I don't care what I, they're typing, they're yelling. Yeah. And and it's just, it, if you need to type capital letters, they got a shift key on there already. There's no reason for that thing to be so, re- if they wanted to put it on somewhere where it's very hard to activate, then I would be okay with it. But there's just so no need for the all caps key in general. Now, now we have had some, some senior surgeons on this podcast who t- still type with one finger at a time, right? So I don't know if they could hold down the podcast and still get <laughs> To a Senate, so maybe it was it was for a different generation. Might have been for maybe a different generation. Um, in your downtime, we always we like to ask about music around here. What's playing? You you get a down day. Not a lot of these these days, right? But you get them. And what's what's on the radio on the way home or kicking around Saturday around the house eating dinner? Oh, I'm I'm actually pretty good friends with um, Courtney Taylor from the Dandy Warhols. What? And yeah, so I I listen to the Dandy Warhols fairly frequently uh i, I haven't you think a, you could get us a cameo she could do the cover for the the intro song or uh oh yeah if uh, you guys wanted to do uh, that i'm pretty sure i could actually um yeah he and i talk on the phone every so often and stuff like that and then uh, we've been friends for a while since they they we had the the dandies toured by um the lab i was doing research in at mass general some years ago and we've kept in contact and been friends for some time since then so I listen to the dandies a lot. I would say, in general, I'm an alternative music kind of guy. Yeah. I like stuff with a little bit of an edge for the most part. I imagine they're having a rough time these days with all this COVID and no travel and stuff. But uh, Yeah, they were. They had... He, I was just talking to him on the phone the other day, and I guess they've canceled a bunch of dates in Europe that they were going to do this summer that they're really bummed about. And, yeah. Uh, wow. Fortunately, they own their own... Um, 
they own a studio, a rec- recording studio in Portland, so they are still recording stuff uh, and Social producing and stuff. I'm yeah. sure is being observed. Well, good. Oh, yeah. Um, what uh, so you've had uh, last question's a little more serious here you've, you've kind of had an interesting tract I, I sh- we were kind of kindred souls in that we were both attendings and you get to a level where you're finally I'm done with training and I'm maybe not the boss in the building but I'm finally an attending people have, I'm a man of some influence or woman of some influence in my own little sphere right mm-hmm. and then we decided both of us to go back and do some training again and you, you do come down off that ladder Ooh. and I, you know, well know and I know I I well know. I went back back and did vascular. You're now stepping into the R. Adams Cali Shock Trauma Center, and you're just another fellow, according to Dr. Scalia. And he loves all his fellows, but you got to start from square one. Um, talk a little bit about why did you decide to do that, and then what have been the biggest things you didn't expect and the biggest challenges? <laughs> okay. Um, the why I did it, it there's, there's a room for improvement in every aspect of medicine. And it was my observation that um, kids that were victims of trauma and also kids that had major surgical undertakings uh, needed, uh, would, could benefit from a more focused approach on inflammation as the main physiologic abnormality. And uh, there's variability in PICUs around the country with regard to that. There are lots and lots of places that do a great job of it. But I think that it that surgeons should be more interdigitated in that process in the field of children's surgery than has kind of been the norm in the training centers that I've been and the places that I've worked as both a locums and a gone on visiting professorships and stuff like that. There's kind of a movement in pediatric surgery to move in that direction where we're trying to make sure that the pediatric surgery fellows are more trained in critical care and have a greater depth of knowledge about what they need to be doing for their patients postoperatively. In order to be academically a part of that process, one of the things that was necessary was to get the credentials to make that happen, to be academically yeah. relevant in that Have field. a piece of paper. Right. Yeah. And, but more so, I wanted to go someplace, I wanted to find, I wanted to go somewhere where the field of trauma is constantly being developed and capture some of that, um, that innovative approach and bring it to the, to the care of children subjected to trauma and their subsequent care and also apply it you know as well to surgical critical care because there's lots of innovative stuff that's done here at shock trauma as you all know Mm -hmm. uh, that it has yet to trickle down to um, children some of it may not be applicable some of it will some of it might be an approach that can lead in a different direction but still has the same relevance and value and uh, and so I wanted to come someplace where I could get that density and that robust and experience. You know, we, it, it's uncommon in the pediatric surgical intensive care unit training programs to write your own CRRT prescriptions. Uh, but here it's like an everyday experience. So that kind of stuff was what I was looking for. We do a lot of uh, endovascular uh, hemorrhage control here, which is something that's not done that frequently in kids at the moment, ex- outside of the IR suite, but in the trauma bay, that's a excellent rescue method in certain circumstances that may have some relevance to kids stuff like that I wanted to get a chance to really dig into that one time so that was the that was the reason for coming here I would say I mean it is a it is always tricky to have to step backwards in your training process um, I don't think I would necessarily inc- 
you know, encourage someone to do it casually. I took a lot of time to think about whether I really wanted to do this, and I still stand by the decision. Um, I think the thing that's probably the most unexpected development, I think that's easy for everyone in this moment to say that the COVID-19 kind of uh, reorganization of everything related to our economy and healthcare has been uh, the thing I least expected going into this. I mean, I just think back to even January. It was just a, you know, it was a unit coverage month. We were talking about it. We were aware of it, but it wasn't impacting things in the way that we've changed so many policies and practices here. And it's kind of putting everybody on hold for figuring out who they're hiring and what their strategic uh, goals, both academically and community surgery practices nationwide are right now. I don't think everyone knows where we're headed yet. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be untold. It's, it's certainly changed healthcare practices for the short term, probably the long term. Um, but it's a bad time to be out looking. For, I mean, I've retired from the military next year, and I'm already thinking, what's the impact going to be on that job market? Because a lot they're they're laying doctors off in some parts of the country that uh, maybe not surgeons per se, but it's just going to be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, listen, Howard, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. We kind of uh, are kindred spirits a little bit, uh, at least behind the closed doors, when uh, we can step away from the full view of all the other residents and fellows around. Former military guy, like my, you know, I'm still in the military, you're a former guy. Um, thank you for your service. Thank oh, you yeah. for everything you do, and it's great to have you around, and it's been great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you so um, much. I appreciate being asked to put something together. Yeah, and so, folks, for those listeners, this has been the Trauma Podcast, yet another episode in the books. Uh, please consume uh, the podcast wherever you can find them. Uh, people look on iTunes, Spotify. There's a host of different options that we are out there on. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can always email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. That's all one all lower uh, case letters the trauma podcast at yahoo.com thanks for listening